1: and Bujo Boswell. On this episode of the DIY Sportsman Podcast, we discuss hunting on a budget. Specifically, how to save money on hunting gear. However, there are a few additional ways outside of gear that you can save cash year in and year out as well. This is aimed mainly at people who are just starting out and may think they need more than they actually do. However, we think nearly everyone can relate to learning about other places they can look to get high level gear other than simply buying it new. We also have an exciting announcement regarding our first podcast partnership. I'm starting to get pretty excited for Santa coming up.
0: Yeah, me too. I still got some. I still got to kind of figure out what I need to pack and bring camping wise. Um, obviously, pad, quilt. Uh, been looking at getting a bivy, so I don't know if I'm going to buy a bivy before then
1: and just take a bivy, or what. So, I'm going to bring my my new hammock stuff, uh, but the issue is I haven't even taken it out of the box yet. I got all that stuff for Black Friday sales and it's just sitting in the closet. I haven't had, well, I guess I've had the time, but I haven't taken the time to go out and make sure that everything's all in one piece and actually set it up. It's been too cold. I still got to get my shotgun sighted in too. I I got seven boxes of different slugs to try out. And I got basically one weekend to get them all tested. I might just go with the old tried and true if I don't have enough time to actually get them all tested. Just get that new scope sighted in. Right. Worst case scenario and then I can come back and do the load testing when we get back.
0: Yeah, that might be cuz what is it? Less than a week? Yeah. Uh no, just
1: well, just Thursday. Over a week. Today's yeah. So, exact exactly one week, exactly one week from when this podcast launches, we will be exactly. arriving in Georgia.
0: Yep, one week. Yeah, I have the red eye flight, so I leave here at twelve forty-five a.m. and we'll get in at like nine thirty in the morning there.
1: I hope you saved a lot of money on that flight because I don't know what you were thinking I did. otherwise.
0: <laughs> I did. I can sleep on a plane; it doesn't bother me. So yeah,
1: I checked every single flight that there was available, and they were all roughly within twenty or thirty bucks of one another. So I just picked the most convenient times.
0: Yeah, I think I saved about two hundred mm, two hundred twenty bucks or something like that. By doing the red eye. so
1: There is no direct flight, surprisingly, from MSP. So I'm a little bit worried about bringing meat back because I'm going to have a layover. How uh, long is your layover? It's not long. I think the overall total trip is like five or six hours. Yeah, which isn't it too shouldn't bad. be bad. As long as it doesn't get like held it, up or lost or something.
0: Yeah, I brought meat back when I came back from Missouri back around Thanksgiving. And it was about a little over a four hour flight, but I also had a two hour drive to the airport. So it was about six hours total, and I had one package of meat that was not firmly frozen on the outside when I got back, and that was with no ice, just in a soft-sided, like, zip-up cooler.
1: And did you freeze the meat before you put it in the cooler?
0: Yes, I did. My meat was frozen
1: solid. Okay, but you had nothing else in the cooler? It was just the frozen meat? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out if it makes sense to just freeze the meat and leave it in there or add dry ice. Or use like one of those ice extenders or to just like freeze a solid bottle of water.
0: Can't have more than five pounds of dry ice and it has to be vented. Um, So think anything you add to it, so like a bottle of frozen water or like them coolant packs or an ice saver, Mm -hmm. that's added weight to your bag. So that's theoretically less meat you can bring on. If you can freeze that meat solid, um, dry ice doesn't weigh a lot, so you can get away with that. So it doesn't weigh as much, but it has a lot more cooling effect to it. So I would go, you know, either all frozen meat and just by itself or frozen meat and dry ice would be my, what I'd lean towards.
1: Yeah. Greg said we should be able to freeze the meat down there. So that's what I'm banking on. Yeah, that'll be good. Speaking of Santa Palooza, this is a good podcast to bring up the fact that we are now partnering with Arrowhunter, the tree saddle brand. It is.
0: Yep, Arrowhunter. So, I mean, obviously, we both use our saddles. We've both been saddle hunting. I've been saddle hunting for, holy crap, what is it, Uh, 13 years now, maybe? No, yeah, 2000 and – no, 2005. Yeah, so 13
1: years. Wow, I'm old. <laughs> and what was your progression of saddles back from when you first started to what you are S- using now?
0: So I went from – Uh, trophy line it was their the tree saddle the neoprene version to a when I got on their pro staff I went with a leather version in a medium and then I used it up until I started working with Arrow Hunter so then it was the original Arrow Hunter then a couple months later we developed the Evolution and then from the Evolution I think I've went through Uh, probably I would venture to guess 15 to 20 prototypes to what is now the Kestrel. And now we have the Kestrel. So I've used a lot of saddles.
1: Yeah. And just to make it clear for the listeners, when you say we developed, you actually did have some input in how those saddles were designed and a lot of the prototype feedback.
0: Correct. Yes. I was primarily the product design consultant, basically for the development of the Kestrel. Um, so to kind of go back on that, I was on trophy line tree staff or pro staff for a couple years, quite a few years up until they kind of went out of business, faded away into the darkness, whatever you want to call that. And then arrow hunter, or at the time it was still new tribe, new tribe had said they were coming out with basically a hunting style harness, which what they did was they basically took a climbing style harness that they had slapped some camo fabric on it and marketed towards hunters. And when that happened, um, my email inbox, my Archery Talk inbox, everything just blew up with people wanting to know what my thoughts were on the saddle. So I kind of reached out to them, say, hey, you know, I'd be interested in testing one of these. So they sent me one. I tested it, uh, sent them back some critiques on it and kind of my thoughts on it. And after like two or three months, they got back with me and said, okay, help us design one specifically for saddle hunting. So I worked with them to design the evolution, which still had a lot of the tree climbing arborist style, um, hardware and gear into it because they really didn't let me kind of go full bore on what I thought hunters needed. They wanted to stay close to what they knew being the arborist and tree saddle side. Um, and just kind of work with the hunting. And then after the evolution. You know they kind of really turned the reins loose and let me and one of their sewers slash product designers there um, kind of really team up and work hard to develop the kestrel and it was i think three years of product development put into that particular product
1: yeah definitely a, a great history
0: yeah. It's interesting. Um, never would have thought that just making a couple of YouTube videos with a cheap crappy camera <laughs> in college, because I found a product that not many people were using and it boggled my mind why people weren't saddle hunting. It was so amazingly awesome. Um, I didn't understand why people weren't doing it. So I just put a, a post on Archery talk about, Hey, I have a tree saddle. I've hunted from it for a while. You know, any questions you guys have, I'll do my best to answer them and i just started making videos on all the questions i had and it that's what led me to trophy line actually called me and said hey you know we're getting a lot of people saying that the guy you have working for you on youtube is what you know made me buy a tree saddle and they had no idea who i was so they looked me up on youtube and
1: sent me an email and what all went from there and for me i had bought a lone wolf assassin i think around 2005 or 2006 it wasn't too long after I had bought my original Lone Wolf Assault tree stand. And I kind of went half and half between those two stands from Lone Wolf. And the Lone Wolf Assassin is not really a true saddle system, but it allows some of the benefits of saddle hunting. It wasn't a super comfortable system as is. Um, It was more of an upright standing. You stand on the platform and the the tether system basically holds you uh, to the tree and you just kind of lean out a little bit. But, I mean, there were some great opportunities that I had with that tree stand. and still one of my best public land bucks. Came eight feet off the ground hunting off of that system. And eventually, I started using the Assault more and more. Just because I wasn't a huge fan of that that whole harness that they had. It was pretty bulky and it was pretty noisy. There was a lot of metal buckles and stuff. So, it just kind of slowly faded out. And I just kept using that hang-on stand. Well, fast forward to a couple of years ago when I started getting more into the idea of saddle hunting as a potential benefit, cutting the weight and all that kind of thing for public land hunting and going in deep, going on blind sits, running and gun, all that good stuff. And I started off with the DIY version, which was the sit drag paired with a rock climbing harness. And then last year that morphed into using the Arrow Hunter Kestrel, which is what I used basically on all of my sits last year. And what I probably will plan to use most of the time this coming year. So for me and for you and for this podcast, I do think that it's really just like a, a perfect match for us to partner up with arrow hunter.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously we use different bows, we use different arrows, we use everything else, but that's the one thing that we really had in common was the Kestrel. Um, so obviously, you know, they were looking to to try to do more marketing to get it out there and obviously they reached out to me to see what I knew. Um, and then that's how all this kind of got, got paired together.
1: Absolutely. All right. So for this podcast, the gear on a budget, it it seems like there's a lot of times when I post something about a new piece of gear that I'm using and it might not be most, the majority of the people, it might just be like one or two guys, we'll mention something about how it's too expensive or they can't afford it. A lot of guys in hunting are just on, you know, like blue collar budgets. And, you know, like for me, I was hunting on a college budget. So were you for a long time. You definitely can't afford what you can with a full-time job when you're on a college budget. So I think a lot of the things that I use now are just not because what I had used in the past wasn't effective or didn't work. It's just that now I have more money and I'm able to upgrade things and have more comfort and more effectiveness and that type of thing. Uh, But there's definitely some things that I think you and I have both learned along the way that can probably help out a lot of the guys that are really just trying to get into this either from scratch or they don't have a large budget. And they think based on social media and TV that they need to buy the latest and greatest stuff. And we'd like to just you know, provide some more information on that.
0: Yeah, it's the greatest thing is, I mean, obviously this is the DIY Sportsman's podcast, so you can do DIY things to save money, but also you don't have to go out and buy the latest and greatest. I know a prime example is, I mean, you've been talking quite a bit off the podcast about the Quivalizer, which is a Quiver slash Stabilizer mix. And it's a very, like $160, 170 bucks just to buy one to try, and then you just posted a couple of days ago on your Instagram a photo where you basically took a quiver and strapped it to your DIY stabilizer as something just to try out. So there you saved basically 150 bucks to try a product out to kind of get the, the principle or the idea of a product before trying to spend the money to decide whether you really like it or not.
1: Right, exactly. And obviously the advantage was I already had both the quiver and the stabilizer. That stabilizer I put together for maybe oh gosh, I don't even know, probably like $20 worth of materials. I also had access to some machines. I had access to a lathe to do some of the the turning on those parts. But then the quiver, the Alpine Softlock quiver, I bought that on eBay for 17 bucks like six years ago. And I used it for a long time. I used it when I shot my mule deer this past fall, that quiver. So there's definitely, and we'll get into this more and more about some of the places you can look to find great gear. Um, And part of it too, it's like, if you look at like a PGA tour golfer, you could give him a wooden golf club and he'd kick my butt any day of the week out on the golf course. So, it's in certain regards it's like more what you do with the gear than the gear itself. It's the Indian not the bow.
0: There you go. It's really it is. Um, you know, especially well, speaking of bows, bows are a big one. You know, bows now average around 1000 bucks to get into most, you know, reputable company bows. Uh, but as somebody starting out, you don't have to dive in to pay that $1,000. Um, some of these midline or even some of the, you know, heavy youth line, like I know Bear used to make a pretty good um, decent kid's bow that would actually go up to, you know, 60 pounds. and was 27 half 28 28-inch draw length. So if you fit in that range, it was like 230 or 240 bucks. Um, to get into it, if you can afford that, go for it. Don't be worried about, you know, if you're, if you know your specs, that's the biggest thing is, you know, if you're getting into it with bows, is go to a shop, have them fit you. And I hate to say it, but a lot of shops probably aren't going to fit you correctly. Um, you know, go to a good shop that can help you figure out what draw weight you need as well as draw length and even look on the used market. Um, you know, do a little bit of research on what to look for when buying a used bow. You know, make sure the limbs are in good condition the strings are in good condition. Um, you know, obviously shoot it a few times to make sure it works, but don't be worried about buying a brand new top of the line bow when you can go with something like a a used bow or even a midline bow and save a couple hundred bucks pretty easy.
1: Right. And I think one of the side effects of bow companies, you know, the big five or six that are out there that keep trying to make new models every single year, which, you know, over the past like five, 10 years, there's not a whole lot of changes from one year to the next. You're Minor little things they get marketed a lot to try and get more sales, but you look at the bows from five years ago compared to the bows now. Yeah, there's some minor differences, but the bows five years ago are still really good bows, and we're talking flagship bows. And if you look at a lot of the sub-flagship bow, you know, like the five-six hundred dollars ones, yeah, you give up some speed, you might give up some, you know, performance on like the weight or things like that. But they're still going to kill deer, and even a lower end compound bow is still going to kick the crap out of any kind of trad bow performance wise. And obviously people still have plenty of success with trad bows.
0: And even with trad bows, don't be, you know, once you know what your draw length is and how much weight you can shoot, again, go to a shop, shoot a couple bows, figure out what that range is for you. You can buy used trad bows relatively cheap, especially, you know, custom one piece bows that people are selling that they've had for a few years, you know, and just some basic questions to ask them is like, how was the bow stored? Was it stored strung or unstrung? You know, simple questions like this can really improve your investment by knowing the condition in which the bow was stored. Um, so you can save a couple hundred bucks pretty easy by doing stuff like this.
1: Yeah. And I think, I know there's one category of people, the people that are just getting started that don't know what to look for. It's kind of challenging because, like, I have a friend who's just getting into bow hunting over this past fall, and he literally has. He had no idea what to even start looking for. He would send me pictures of bows and say, is this what I need? And it would be like a left-handed 25 inch draw kid's bow that he saw for like $299, but he was interested in it because of the price, not because it was what he needed, because he didn't know what he needed. And um, I, had, I have one example that's kind of funny, actually. The first compound bow that I ever had, uh, my dad bought it from one of his old high school friends And it was like an old XI bow, old compound. He bought it for $50. And that was the bow that I shot all summer to get ready for my first bow hunting season. And like a week before the season, I brought it into a shop. I I can't remember what it needed to be done to it. We needed to get like a new string or or something. And the guy at the counter's like, I'm not going to work on this bow. And I was like, why not? He's like, well, he got duct tape around a splinter in the limb. And I was like, Oh, okay. Is that bad? Like literally I had no idea at that, t- that point in my life. I had no idea that that was a terrible thing. I thought it was just maybe like a surface defect or something, not something that was actually dangerous. So this is where finding a resource or finding a friend that has done it before can really help you. If they really know what they're, what they're doing, they can help you find a bow that will get you what you need. It's better to be set up with a bow that fits you well than one that's going to cost a lot of money, but doesn't fit you well.
0: I worked at a bow shop for quite a few years, and I seen stuff like that every year, you know, a couple times a month. People would come in with a bow that was handed down to them. You know, they wanted to get into archery. Uh, you know, the other shop in town wouldn't work on it because the bow was so old. They just tried to sell them a new one. Obviously, the people didn't have enough money, so they just wanted to try to get what they had up and running. So a lot of times, like when I would, when somebody would come in buy a new site, buy a new rest, you know, I would ask them if they wanted to their old site back um and if not that we did basically a donation program where they can donate it to the shop and then when people like that come in and they don't have enough money to buy you know a new site whatever we had older three pin sites you know that still had the square housing whisker biscuits stuff like that off other people's bows that they didn't plan on using that we could give to those people and put on their bow and help set them up their bow with so look around for things like that
1: Mm mm-hmm yeah and i think one thing that's true with bows and bow accessories, and that's also true for a lot of the other things we're going to talk about, is that if you use the cheap things first, and you actually get experience using these things, you'll eventually figure out what you actually need to upgrade and what you can get away with. The uh, first time that I went to Colorado, and this isn't a bow story, this is just uh, getting experience using the cheap stuff first. I went out there and basically what I thought would be the greatest setup based on things that I had read and calculations that I had done based on weight. And I was out there in a single man shelter and just a three quarter length closed cell foam pad that was super light. I had a down sleeping bag that I bought off of Sierra Trading Post, I think, for like 80 bucks, but it was like originally a $200 bag. And I got out there and we got what, 12, 18 inches of snow dumped on us? And it sucked. I was miserable for a few days there. And so after that experience, I survived and I knew what I wanted to upgrade and what I could get away with. It's like, yeah, I can survive on some of these things, but these are things I would like to upgrade as soon as I get the money to do so. And I have since done that.
0: Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people, they just, with social media being so big now, you know, they see things and because a lot of people are using it, they think they need to have that. There's A lot of people out still hunting with whisker biscuits. They're probably one of the best rest ever made. They're pretty foolproof. They're really cheap. You know, you can find them used. A lot of times people who've upgraded from a whisker biscuit are willing to give away their old whisker biscuit. So you can upgrade to something like that. Or if you're getting started in it, you can use something like that. And that can last you for years. Like I said, there's still a lot of people who use them. Releases, to me, releases are a big one. You can go to Walmart and find a release for 12 bucks, 15 and you can find releases on, you know, like Lancaster or something like that, all the way up to a couple hundred dollar range. There's really not a whole heck of a lot of difference in the releases. If you start going up, yeah, they're a little bit more crisper, a little less travel in them, but for a new shooter, they don't know and understand the difference in some of that stuff. So to get started, something as simple as, you know, you can go to Walmart for that matter, Arrows, you're probably, as a new shooter, you're probably going to break some arrows and lose some arrows. Um, you know, you can start out with Walmart arrows, you know, some of the Carbon Express stuff that they sell there. It's not the greatest, but again, we're working with a on a budget. Um, so it's going to be 20-yard accurate for the most part.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for a lot of these things, it almost seems like there's kind of like an exponential curve for cost and quality. It's like at the very low end of the spectrum, you got something that works. And then if you pay twice as much, you'll get something that works a decent amount better. But then eventually you get to the point where to get something that's just the slight tiniest bit better than what you had before, you got to spend a lot more money. That's true in releases. That's true in a lot of the, it's true in tree stands. It's true in camping equipment for sure. Once you go ultralight, it's like, hmm, I could save two ounces, but it's going to cost me 300 extra dollars.
0: I was I was listening to a, a, one of these backcountry podcasts out here somewhere. I don't even remember which one it was. And they were talking about dollar per ounce. Basically, if you want to save an ounce, how much is that going to cost you? And they had some average figured up, and it was a ridiculous amount. It was, like, uh, greater than 600 bucks an ounce, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so you think about that. If you're trying to save a pound, how much money are you going to shell out? Um, so it goes right along with that, you know yeah, you can shell out a lot of money and be super lightweight and super great or you can not shell out so much money, be a little bit tougher and, you know, still have the same type of gear that'll get you through. Like you said, you survived your your first encounter out here basically, so.
1: Be a little bit tougher, get in a little bit better shape then you won't notice those extra ounces. Even sometimes with like walking in with tree stands and sticks and stuff, it's like sometimes I'll look at like something with my climbing sticks and be like, Oh, I could swap this with something else. Like I was looking at those sticks that I made. Those sticks have, uh, basically alloy steel bolts, like grade eight bolts across the board. And they have steel fender washers for the Versa button. And I, and they have a steel spacer on the Versa button too. And I looked up on McMaster car and I was like, well, I can get a nylon spacer instead of the, st- uh, the chrome steel spacer. And I can get a titanium washer instead of the steel washer. And I calculated out how much that would save me. It was like one ounce across all my four sticks, and it would have cost me—I don't know—like thirty bucks. I'm thinking, like, yeah. oh, not worth it. <laughs> you know, tree stands are a good example. Um, yeah, there's—you
0: can go to you know, Dick, some of these places and buy some of these heavier tree stands and save quite a bit more compared to like a lone wolf. You know, as somebody starting out it's probably a good idea to start with those lower end tree stands. Um, you know, obviously they pass TMA certification, if you want to believe in that stuff. Um, but you can save quite a bit of money by going with a heavier stand compared to a, a lighter stand like a Lone Wolf or something like that.
1: And one thing's for sure, if you start off with a heavy stand, then you can actually appreciate what it's like to use a lightweight stand that costs a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I think all of us probably started out with an old, like, api grand slam that was you know 27 28 pounds climbing tree stand or something like that that had the old cable that run through it uh, where you had to put the pin in it not these newfangled climbing tree stands that are are pretty nifty
1: yep every time i walk through like a fleet farm or something i'm always seeing all like the the big dog tree stands or whatever they got they're like 49.99 hang on stands probably weigh like 22 pounds
0: to me this is where the social media aspect really comes in because you can follow whoever you want and you're looking at their gear and that's what they're using now. You know, a lot of these guys have been hunting for 20 plus years. So they've went through this whole evolution. You know, if you were to ask them, you know, what was the first gear they used and compare it to the first gear you're using, it's probably going to be really similar. A lot of these guys didn't go out and spend, you know, a grand on a bow like you can now pretty easy. Um, So a lot of them started out with, you know, used recurves that was passed down through the family or the old, um, original compound bows, basically. So that's the hardest thing is because social media is so widespread that you can easily look at things. You can see people who's been hunting for years, basically, and see the gear they're using. And that's kind of like, oh, I need to be hunting with that. When in all reality, you don't need to be.
1: Right. And I mean, even if you look at like the technology curve over the last few decades, like I wonder what like Chuck Adams gear list look like when he completed a super slam or even further back than that, you look at a guy like Fred bear, Howard Hill guys like this, the clothing technology wasn't nearly what it is now. The boat technology wasn't nearly what it is now. Obviously the the game opportunity was probably a little bit different back then as too, but you had a technology curve that's now gotten so good And the prices come along with that. We kind of sometimes forget about what was used before what we have has gotten so popular.
0: You mentioned Chuck Adams. I still think he shoots fingers. He doesn't even use a release. Um, John Eberhard also shoots fingers. He doesn't use a release. You know, nowadays it's, you know, mind-boggling not to shoot a release on a compound bow, much less not to use a D-loop on a compound bow. I mean, just think we used to use knocks underneath of our arrows and just put our release directly on the string. And now that's like voodoo, basically. (laughs) It's just not allowed. Right. It's been done for decades. And, you know, so little things like that. You don't have to follow the the social media curve or the social media crowd um, to get into hunting.
1: One thing about tree stands, actually two more things about tree stands I wanted to add was, with the cheap tree stands, one other difference other than the obvious weight difference that I've found is that some of those cheap tree stands they are quite a bit noisier at certain times especially if it's cold out the creek can pop a little bit more than a nice like a cast aluminum stand would or a saddle for that matter but the other thing with tree stands and anything elevated is you know people are always looking at how they can make their tree stand and their sticks or whatever climbing method they're going to use lighter so that they don't have to carry in so much weight when they're going on a deep hunt but the thing that a lot of people seem to overlook nowadays is that the lightest and easiest method and the cheapest is to just simply hunt off of the ground where you, where it's applicable. I mean, sometimes you might get drawn into the the notion that to hunt whitetails in modern days you have to use a tree stand. And in certain terrain, that's probably that can be the case just depending on what the undercover looks like. But then you look at DVDs like the Whitetail Adrenaline guys. I mean, pretty much all they do is hunt from the ground now. Even in like hill country, it's not all out west stuff that they do. They do stuff where they just kind of still hunt through like hill country bedding terrain. And they do pretty well. So you don't have to hunt elevated. And that's going to save you, especially if you're just starting off, that's going to save you a lot of money and time just trying to figure all that stuff out. One of the
0: biggest deer I have ever seen killed with a bow and arrow, was on public land, from the ground, off of a white five-gallon bucket. And this was a probably a 180 typical 10-point. Um, shot it at nine yards off the ground, with uh, sitting on a white plastic bucket. During the rut? Yep. And it was just like, well, okay, you can pretty much just go out there and sit in the woods, and you're going to kill deer. You know, <laughs> So like you said, you, you don't even need a tree stand. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just are afraid of heights. They don't use tree stands. You know, they can start out on a a stool or in a, like a a lawn chair or something like that.
1: Well, and this brings up a good point too. Sitting on the ground is something that a lot of times is more common with firearms hunting. And I honestly think that if people are trying to get into hunting to give themselves a taste of it or just to get the experience and kind of learn if they want to pursue it more, Getting an in-state firearms tag is going to be a lot easier way to go, generally starting off than to try to get started in archery. It's, gonna, it's so much easier of a learning curve learning to shoot a gun than it is to proficiently shoot a bow. And even though you have usually a lot shorter season, there's also a lot more opportunity for people to be moving deer around. And like you said, the opportunity or the chance at just sitting on the proverbial white five gallon pail and having a nice buck walk past, is going to be a lot better during firearm season than a lot of times it's going to be during bow season outside of the rut. Absolutely. You know, first tree stand I ever hunted out of was actually a scaffolding, and I was
0: probably 16 years old before I hunted out of a tree stand, out and it was a, an old scaffolding because my dad owned a construction business, and we'd put a scaffolding up out in the back, and that's the first tree stand I ever hunted from. Probably not the safest thing in the world, but before that, we hunted off the ground. That's all we did. Um, so, you know, we firearms hunted. That's how I got into hunting and hunted from the ground. And we spent years doing that. My dad still does it. My dad hates tree stands.
1: Going back to what we had talked about in the podcast that we did about in-season scouting and how a lot of times, even especially in large areas, it really pays to take your boots on the ground and just don't even set up until you find what you're looking for rather than just wasting your time in a spot that you know is cold, but it's the spot that you had kind of set in your mind that you wanted to sit at that night. One thing I want to personally try a little bit more next year, I think, especially if I'm hunting the same areas that I did this year is to literally just stay light, just hunt with the saddle, hunt with my lightweight climbing sticks and just kind of continue to combine in-season scouting and hunting as much as possible if i'm on the ground i'm moving slow through an area if i find the sign that i want to see then i can set up if i don't then i just keep moving slow until i find that good sign and then if i don't find what i'm looking for i end up just not climbing a tree and i head back to the truck and there's also the opportunity that i come up on a deer that was already naturally moving i did that last year when i was actually moving from one location to another during the firearm season i got down from my tree I started moving over to a different spot and I just walked right up on a doe. I would have been able to shoot her if it was an archery hunt too. Um, And I didn't have a doe tag during that season. So I didn't shoot her, but the opportunity was there. It it can happen. It's not common, but it can happen. Especially when you watch DVDs like the white tail adrenaline guys, it's like, Oh, these are really like the only guys that are on kind of mainstream or the well-known guys that are hunting off the ground that are showcasing a lot of success. And it's kind of something that I'm thinking about trying to do more so than I did last year. Just kind of combining that in-season scouting with the actual hunting and just making the system as lightweight as I can so that I can just great. be mobile.
0: One of the great things with the saddle, and I've done this a few times, is you don't even need to take your climbing sticks or a platform. Once you find a tree that you think's in a good spot, you can just attach your saddle right there at ground level. Your feet are on the ground and you're hunting just like if you were 20 feet up using the ground as your platform. Um, you know, I do this a lot when I hunt with my flintlock. So I've got a flintlock that's 60-something inches long, and it's really hard to kind of wield around. And I've just done exactly that, just walked around kind of scouting as I'm looking. It's like, oh, hey, you know, there's a pretty good oak flat. Looks like it's been tore up pretty good. You know, just find it on the downwood side of it and set up the saddle at the ground level and lean the gun up against a tree.
1: Yeah, I did that one time early season bow hunting last year where I had all my sticks and I had everything with me. By the time I got to the area that was on a nice point leading out into the marsh and it was all kind of matted down right in that area, but there was really no good trees to climb. There was a lot of, a lot of high canopy that if I did climb a tree, I wouldn't be able to have very many shooting lanes. So I just literally just hung my saddle right at ground level and just hunted that way.
0: And don't overlook still hunting. I mean, you don't need any of that. Just simply, you know, walk every 50 yards and stop for five minutes, 10 minutes. You know, there's still a lot of places where still hunting can really pay off. Um, you know, so just walk through the woods, lean up against a tree, sit down at the base of that tree for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long you feel like it, you get bored, stand up and just kind of ease your way through the woods to another
1: tree. Speaking of still hunting, I think a lot of guys, the most common mistake that I know that I fall into, and I'm sure a lot of guys do as well, is simply moving too fast and just not taking another step until you've literally looked over everything and you know exactly what's going on in your surroundings before you're ready to move forward again.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of a lost art, honestly. Uh, you know, still hunting was a, a real good way to hunt, you know, back when lever action 3030s 30s were really big and even muzzle loaders, you know, just slowly stalking through the woods, um, you know, and slowly, you know, taking, you know, a couple minutes to go 20 yards. You know, every two or three steps, you know, basically just lean up against the closest tree. And that's kind of the way my dad taught me was as you're walking through the woods, you know, every tree you come to, lean up against it and stand there for a few minutes, you know, and walk slowly to the next tree. So, you know, in the hardwoods of Missouri, you don't have to go but five yards to run into another tree if you're walking in a straight line. They're pretty much everywhere.
1: Yeah. There are some guys I've noticed, even on public land, that get pretty irritated at guys that hunt on the ground just because they feel like the guys that hunt on the ground are having a a bigger impact on the deer movement potentially. But I mean, I don't know. I've seen guys hunting on the ground before. It doesn't really, I don't really let it bother me too much. I've never had any
0: bad, I mean, hunt however you want to hunt. I mean, if you want to hunt from the ground, hunt from the ground. You want to still hunt, still hunt. I mean, I've hunted public land and have squirrel hunters come through. I'm a huge squirrel hunter. So I'm just like wave at them and let them go on their way. You Mm -hmm. know,
1: the time of the year right now that we're in, tends to be pretty good for finding deals on used equipment or equipment that's discontinued or stuff that they're just trying to phase out so they can release the next year stuff. Especially that's the case with, well, I guess for Bose it's the case that you're like your archery shops cause they're pulling out the new models. So they're trying to close out the last year's models and might knock off like a hundred bucks or so. It's definitely the case with clothing, especially for companies that come out with new clothing lines or new garments every year. Um, and uh, like first light's a good example of that. They have their 20 to 40% off tag soup sale. I'm sure there's other vendors or other companies that have similar sales. Cabela's has always got bargain cave deals going on. It seems like. If you
0: think about it from a retail perspective, you know, Cabela's, for example, really doesn't want to have to pack up all that camouflage clothes that's on the shelf and put it in a warehouse and store it till next year and then bring it back back next year and sell it. The same thing for your local mom and pop um, sporting goods store. They don't want to have to box up all that clothes they've got on the shelves, store it in their attic, in their warehouse, wherever, only to roll it out next year and hang it back up. You know, so a lot of times they would rather sell it, you know, down around their cost, whatever that might be, or near that cost, um, just so they don't have to store it and sit on that product for that long. So that's why you see um, like Sitka, places like this, A lot of them, you know, once they get to the point where they've released new product, you know, they want the money from their vendors who have their product. So they're like, okay, you can sell it down to, you know, this amount. And then they're allowed to drop it. That's why you see a lot of times when sales go on certain clothing like Sitka, First Light, almost all of the vendors who have that, Midway, um, SNS Archery, Black Ovas, places like this, all tend to have the sales at the same time. Right. That's because first light or whoever allowed them to have that sale for X number of days.
1: Yeah and I've definitely taken advantage of a lot of those type of sales from places like Black Ovis. It's a great time to look if there's something you need.
0: Well it's show season so you know ATA show was a month ago um, shot show was a couple weeks ago so now everybody's kind of released all their new products so you know what's going to be discontinued, what's not going to be discontinued uh, you know even individuals, are posting items up on forums to sell to want to upgrade to the newest and latest thing because they're one of those people that likes to upgrade every year. And you as a budget person can really take advantage of these people who like to try and upgrade every year by buying some of their used gear that they're selling.
1: Right. I'm glad you mentioned the forum classifieds because that's a really great place to look for good used gear. A lot of times the people that do that kind of thing and upgrade every year. They're such gear fanatics that a lot of times they take pretty good care of the stuff that they had for that year. It's not always the case, but usually you can tell just by looking at the pictures or maybe if the guy's a regular contributor.
0: Yeah. That's the biggest thing is just making sure that, you know, whatever form you're on or whatever classified you're using is that you're trying to buy from somebody who's um, reputable, who's done it a few times. And if you use PayPal, pay the 3%, it's really not that much because it covers your butt in case something does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are like, well, add the 3 or 4% for you know paying for something. It's well worth it to add that. It's not that big of a deal and it's going to save you if you do get burned on something.
1: Right. And for people that aren't familiar with PayPal, it basically means you pay the guy by selecting goods and services rather than friends and family when you pay your money.
0: And it's a 3, I think it's a 3.5% difference now. So you have to pay 3.5% more, and that 3.5% goes to PayPal. But you get backed by PayPal's buyer program or buyer agreement or whatever they call that. Um, so you're protected. If you get it, it's busted. Um, it's not the way the that they said it was. It wasn't new in box. You know, it's been burned. It's got whatever damage to it. You're covered if you pay that extra 3.5%. For a lot of things, I mean, you're looking at $3.50 per $100. So... Really, not that much more to save your butt, right? With the forms, it's you have specific forms, so you have like, um, uh, you know, Archery Talk has a variety of archery things, then you can go to like Rock Slide that has more Western type things, um, uh, you know, SaddleHunter.com has the saddles, more specific saddles, then you have like, you know, um, gun forms, I can't think of any off the top of my head, I'm not a big gun form guy, uh, but like. Gun Broker, places like that, you can find them on there as well. Um, but guns have to be shipped to an FFL. So,
1: mm-hmm. And in addition, another good place to find good, cheap stuff and good, cheap new stuff is even apart from going to places like Black Ovis or Cabela's that always discount their stuff at the end of the year, there are companies that just specialize in selling discounted stuff. Two examples that come to mind are Camel Fire and Sierra Trading Post. Sierra Trading Post is more of an overall camping outdoor type of store. Camel Fire is more of a hunting specific. And with Camo Fire, you basically you have an app, or I'm pretty sure they have a website too, and they just constantly send you deals. Like, oh, here we have these deals on these particular items, and they're usually pretty good deals, like more than 50% off for a lot of the things. And with Sierra Trading Post, it's like, depending on what you're looking for, if you're looking for a tent, you're looking for a down jacket, you're looking for whatever, you can sort by the thing that you're looking for. You can also sort by cost. You can sort by highest percentage off listed first, a whole bunch of different options.
0: It's kind of good you brought up CR Trading Post because one thing that you don't need to overlook is don't overlook solids or hiking gear um, that's not camouflage because a lot of this stuff is almost the exact same material and makeup, So you can find just um, solid color, you know, from outdoor research, uh, you know, people like this that are very useful in the hunting world. Um, actually, Outdoor Retail Show, which is the giant hunting and or the giant camping and outdoor show they have every year, uh, was just in Denver two weeks ago or so. Um, and I listened to, I think it was South Cox's uh, podcast. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head uh, Western bow hunting or something like that, but he's changed the name of it. He said something in there that really got my attention was, um, you know, basically he would prefer to go to the outdoor research show because that is three to four years ahead of hunting gear. So the products you see there today will be in the hunting industry in camouflage in three to four years, because that's where hunting spans from is the backpacking, the ultralight, Um, camping side of things and that gear has translated over into the hunting gear and he gave a good example of some hoodie that now uh, First Light has one just like it Sitka has one just like it but this company was one that was at Outdoor Retailer and they had that exact product same material everything three or four years before hunting had it so don't overlook camping and hiking gear and that aspect that might be in solid colors
1: right solid colors or even like the, the good old flannel it's still pretty popular. Works for Fred Bear. Yep. Donnie Vincent always wears his flannel stuff and just a regular beanie. It's kind yeah. of become hey, his trademark now.
0: Yeah. So and he, you know obviously it works. You know so you don't have to necessarily go all camoed out. You know solid colors work just as well. I know when I was real big into the traditional community and tr- hunted hard with a traditional bow, I hunted from. uh, I got a still got a wool. I don't even remember who made it now. Um, it's a long sleeve wool shirt that's in gray and had wool pants that was like a gray and black checkered and hunted from that. And it worked well. So I
1: thought you were going to say a buckskin loincloth.
0: Oh, easy now. No, thanks. I'll pass on (laughs) that one. I'm kind of skinny. I'd get cold pretty quick.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that the outdoor industry is a little bit ahead of the hunting industry. It kind of reminds me of the industry that I work in the medical device industry. We're always plenty of years behind like the technology industries just because all the regulations that med devices have to go through. By the time something finally gets to market, the technology is outdated by several years.
0: And you think about it, that's kind of how a lot of the original backpack hunters had to start. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, you had the metal frame, pack frame for the military, but outside of that, there wasn't a whole lot of hunting packs designed for packing weight and stuff like this. So they ultimately had to look at the hiking, the uh, through hikers, the stuff like that, the the gear that they used and bring that into hunting, you know. So that's what the transition has become. And it's still there. You know, there's a lot bigger companies with like outdoor research, um, arteryx, you know, companies like this that can spend a lot more money on product development than some of these other companies might. And they can develop a design faster or a particular material well ahead of the hunting game.
1: Right, and I don't know what the exact split is between how big the outdoor industry is overall compared to the hunting industry, but I'd have to imagine the outdoor industry is a lot bigger.
0: Yeah, I mean, hunting is slowly dying, basically, you know. Whereas you know, hiking, camping, stuff like that is is still out there and still growing strong.
1: Right, and you look at couple, or countries like the U.S. hunting still has a pretty strong heritage, but there's a lot of other countries where hunting is, is almost obsolete except for very small occasions and they still have very large outdoor industries. A lot of places in Europe are kind of like that. I've noticed.
0: Yeah. Hunting and camping. I mean, everybody wants to get away from the city for a little bit, you know, so there's all this you know, money, um, uh, development, natural parks where you can go natural, um, national monuments, and, um, parks where you can go hiking and camping in. You know, there's still a lot of people who like to do that, whereas necessarily, you know, hunting, you know, they may not want to go hunting, but they'd rather go hike up in the mountains. I mean, here in Salt Lake, we have the Wasatch Front, which is basically the eastern side of Salt Lake City is all mountains. Uh, You're allowed to hunt up in there, but if you hike up into the mountains, you're probably going to pass 15 to 20 hikers, bikers, campers before you run into another hunter. Um, there's a lot of hunters up there, but you're, once you get up in there, it's where you're most likely to run into hunters, but on the trail, you know, you're going to pass all kinds of people on your way up there. Mm-hmm. So even with, you know, come down to shoes, stuff like that, you know, you don't have to buy expensive hiking boots. You know, you can find, um, or hunting boots, you can find hiking boots that are basically going to serve the same type of purpose. You know, and again, it goes all the way back to clothes. There's always gear out there, you know, solid colored pants, you know, from whoever it might be, Dickies. Um, you know, you can go to Walmart, buy a solid color pair of Dickie pants. Um, Carhartts for bibs, you know, get a pair of black, brown, green Carhartt bibs to hunt from.
1: I feel like I remember Dan Enfold saying that there's been plenty of times where he's just gone out after work, working at a machine shop, wearing his jeans and whatever shirt he was wearing at work because he knew that he was going to have a favorable wind at whatever day. And then he just played, played his movement spark and made sure he didn't get spotted moving. I
0: don't think my dad's ever killed a deer in complete camouflage. He's always got blue jeans on. Um, you know, he spot and stalked a Turkey to 25 yards and killed it with a longbow and blue jeans and a yellow shirt. So how that happens, I'll never know. <laughs> That's pretty so impressive. You know, it's, there's a, a, image of hunting out there that you're, that you need certain stuff to be, you know, proficient in it, um, when in all reality, it's really not, you know, again, it goes back, it's the Indian, not the bow. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a matter of you. And if, as long as you're out there trying it, um, and you get into it and you practice with whatever you have, you know, you're going to be successful with that.
1: Yeah. And as far as kind of the accessory stuff, you know, we talked a lot about the, the big necessities, the weapon the stand or, or hunting style, the clothing. But there's one thing that we didn't really talk that much about, which is things like calls or scents, lures, trail cameras. You don't need them. If you're on a tight budget, you're going to be probably better off really honing in on some of the woodsmanship skills and learning that. Because if you learn those things first, realistically, you're going to be a better hunter. If you do apply those things later on at some point,
0: it wasn't that long ago. We weren't hunting without trail cameras. I mean, I can remember having a trail camera that took film still, um, you know, so they're really not needed. Yeah. They're nice to post up on social media to say, Hey, look at what I seen, or, you know, you can see some really cool stuff on them of turkeys fighting and things like that. But in all reality, like you said, you just don't need them. They're not required to get into hunting they're one of those things that after two or three years, if you feel like you might need one, you can save up the money, or if you've saved up the money, then you can get one. You know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, being the most proficient killer you can. Um so if you have a a bow, you feel like something on your bow can make you more proficient at shooting, then you know, you may want to look to upgrade that before
1: you upgrade
0: a trail camera.
1: Yeah. And we also talked a lot about getting Good deals on new or used equipment, but there's also, of course, the fact that some things you can DIY. On the bow side of things, it's a little bit harder, unless you're super hardcore like you with an Osage stave. I don't know what you pay for that stave or how many hours you put into it, but...
0: I cut it down and split it. I went from scratch all the way to bow, Um, you know, so I just wanted to do it. It looked cool, looked like an interesting challenge. Um, I obviously had a modern compound bow, but I, for some reason it intrigued me. So here I am, uh, geez, I don't know, probably 12 years later and I'm still, you know, I haven't made a bow in a couple of years, but I've monkeyed with some of the ones that I have over here that are half finished, you know, so it's an option, you know, you did a DIY board bow. Um, so you went down to the local Lowe's and basically made, bought a, bought a piece of wood and made a bow from it.
1: Yeah. And I'm trying to think. I mean, outside of the weapon, things that I DIY. Most of the stuff that I DIY isn't necessarily things that I need. I've DIY'd a lot of accessories on my compound. I've DIYed various things for tree stands and saddles and that type of thing. But well, they're not something you you need, right? Exactly. But they help you
0: save money. So that's kind of the thing is you know being able to save money by doing the DIY. Yeah, you really didn't need to make a a quivalizer but you wanted to see what it was like so you save money by simply taking the existing stabilizer you had and an old quiver that you weren't using and utilizing it to make a product to help you save money.
1: And if I end up not liking it, I'm no worse for the wear. If I end up liking it, I can either continue to use it or I can decide to buy an actual equivalizer or I can decide to optimize whatever the DIY that I want to do and buy a, a carbon rod and 3D print a a housing that's just big enough for exactly three broadheads and nothing more and you know it's it's, it's kind of limited to the imagination at that point but <laughs> that's kind of going into the other end of diy where you go to to try and optimize rather than to save money and a lot of times you end up spending more money to do that
0: yeah so do you need a a three-pin fast Eddie xl that's 350 dollars when you have a a 60 true glow sight that works just fine yes you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for most people, probably not. I mean, if they're obviously, if they can shoot accurately with what they have, they really don't need it. Um, You know, could they simply buy some type of bar extension to extend their sight farther? You know, so that they have more adjustment in their distance. That's a possibility as well. I know, like HHA, for example. You know, they're not the cheapest sight in the world, but you can buy an extension for them to change um, basically how close your pins are to your to your riser to give you a little bit more adjustment.
1: I did that too for my site. I just had a cheap, well, not super cheap. I had a, I have a true glow site five pin on my bow right now and I wanted to get it further out. So what I did was I went on mcmastercar.com and I ordered a two by three inch piece of aluminum. And then I just took that aluminum piece. I put it in a drill press, popped out some larger holes just to reduce the mass weight a little bit, popped and drilled and tapped some other holes. And then that became my extension. So I could screw that piece into the bow riser itself, screwed the sight into the other end of the aluminum. And then I tested all my bubble levels to, you know, test the the first, second, third axis. And I ended up doing a little bit of shimming just to make everything work out right. But it was like, that solution cost me like five or 10 bucks for the piece of aluminum. And it saved me the money over buying some type of extension or dovetail. Which is exactly what we're getting at, Um, you know, one that if, you know, even
0: for archers who are in it, um, you know, the simplest one is a fletching jig, you know, yeah, you gotta, you can buy a fletching jig, but it's going to save you so much money from having to go to a, a shop to have your arrows fletched. Um, you know, learning to fletch your arrows is something that can really save you money in the long run, you know, with a short investment at the time, you know, fletching jigs now you can buy them for 40 bucks, 30 bucks. And it, it, you know, over time, it's
1: really going to save you a lot of money. Yeah, Definitely. I, you've seen my arrow bin, how many different arrows I got in there. I just have a cheap fletching jig. I don't have a nice Spitzenberger. I just have the cheap boning plastic fletching jig. And that's all I've really used. I just got to clean off the, you know, the super glue hardened chunks every now and then just to make sure it's actually clean and it can actually still work. But that thing has worked just fine for me. Arrow spinners are another thing that are pretty easy to DIY instead of getting a, I mean, they're really not that expensive. They're like twenty-five bucks or something for a, a nice arrow spinner. But you can put one together with just some lumber, and like uh, some of those little hardware pieces that you use for drawers, and like cabinets to to slide them out. You get the little wheels on there. That can actually work for an arrow spinner. I mean, we're getting a
0: little in depth, but I did a a DIY bow press. Um, that's what I have. I mean, I think it cost me. I bought the the fingers that were cut out for like $95, and then the rest of it I welded together and put together myself. So I've got a, a bow press for basically probably 120 bucks and a day's worth of measuring, cutting, and welding. You know, so there's a lot of ways.
1: And I'm sure your bow press is probably a lot nicer than mine. I just have the little portable bow press, the Bowmaster one, which was... Oh, gosh, I remember 50 or 60 bucks with the, the split limb attachments. But for the amount of yeah. times that I press my bow, it's not very often. It's maybe a couple times a year at most that I actually need to press my bow. I don't need to, with my new GX2, I don't need to twist any of the cables or anything to tune. So the only really reason that I would need to press my bow is to reinstall a peep sight or add a twist to the string if it gets out of alignment. That's really all I use a, a bow press for. So by spending 50 or 60 bucks on that Bowmaster, I end up saving myself a lot more and save a lot of floor space or a larger, more expensive bow press.
0: And especially like if you take that bow to a shop, a lot of shops have a minimum fee just for putting the bow in a press and pressing it, because that's a liability if the bow, if they break the bow or something like that. So there's a minimum. If the bow hits the press, it's going to cost X amount, whatever that might be. Um, and that's just so that if something was to happen eventually, they're going to have enough money to replace whoever's bow they broke. So it may be 25 bucks. So if your bow hits the press, you know, for 10 seconds to, you know, basically add a twist to a string or something like that, it's going to cost you 25 bucks. You know, basically you do that five times and you've basically paid for a DIY bow press.
1: Mhm. Yeah, there's a lot of things that if you can learn to do on your own, for just, you know, fixing around bows, tying in peep sites, tying on D loops, simple things that and I I don't mean to to tell people to take away business from local shops, especially the ones that know what they're doing, but you can save yourself a lot of money in the long run just by learning to do some of those simple things that'll cost you five dollars here, ten dollars here to get done in a shop.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean like you said, D loops are probably one of the easiest things. I mean, a pair of needle nose pliers and a eight inch, 10 inch piece of D loop cord in three minutes on YouTube. And you can learn how to tie one, you know, so that's something that can really save you money. And it's useful to learn because if you are in the field, uh, whether you're out West or wherever, and your D loop break, something happens, you'll know how to replace it. Um, so that in itself is worth the value to know how to replace it yourself in a situation where you may need to replace it. Mm-hmm. Something with, you know, trying to save money and trying to buy stuff is, you know, there are some things that I would probably try to shy away from buying used compared to new, uh, like safety harnesses, you know, unless you really know the person that was using it and know that that safety harness, you know, didn't sustain any shock, basically any load into it. Um, you know, I would tend to shy away from things like that. Most tree stands you buy come with the safety harness. I think it's actually required by the TMA. Um, yeah, they're cheap. They can get all twisted and tangled up, you know, But getting into it, that's all you need. You don't need a a fancy hunter safety system ultralight that has three buckles and you're in it. Um, You know, it may take you a little bit more time to put it on, um, but it's going to save you money.
1: Yeah, I upgraded from mine as soon as I could. I hate those (laughs) little webbing polyester two-inch strap things. It's like a seat belt tangled mess. (laughs) But, yeah, they work. (laughs) They work, and if you do follow them, you usually need to replace them anyway they're usually rated think, for one fall.
0: Yeah, I think there's actually a program out there that takes in, so when people buy a tree stand, if they have a safety harness already, typically they have a package safety harness that comes with it. Like I said, I think it's required by TMA. I think there's actually a some type of program out there on the Internet somewhere where you can basically request one of those harnesses. So say you purchased a new tree stand and it came with a, one of them, difficult to put on harnesses and you weren't going to use it you can actually send it to this program and then they will distribute it to hunters in need of safety harnesses huh. so there's something like that out there where you can go and get a safety harness again it's not gonna be the greatest safety harness in the world but it's going to be one that's going to save your butt if you fall um, and i'm pretty sure you can get them for free or really cheap uh, i don't remember the name of that program off the top of my head uh, but it's out there
1: a couple other, I guess, off-the-wall type of ideas to save money. One is hunting land that's close to you. Hunting in-state rather than out-of-state. Hunting public land as opposed to leasing land. Those are all good ways to save money. <laughs> Buying a vehicle that gets a little bit better gas mileage or that you bought used and kind of uses as a, an outdoor vehicle versus your your nice, nice uh, brand-new pickup. I got a hunting buddy out here that hunts out of a Prius. And that's the why he does it is because it saves money.
0: And it's the funniest thing in the world to see him roll up to a trailhead in a Prius. <laughs> and everybody else there is in like jacked up trucks and he's in a Prius. He also says it disguises his hunting spot because most people think he's just a hiker oh, and sure. not a bow Oh, Because sure. he's in a Prius.
1: <laughs> Doesn't have any stickers on his truck.
0: Yeah. He's just a little Prius commuter car.
1: I, in college, drove a 1994 Ford Tempo, just a little two-door, boxy-looking car, and I had a couple times where I've driven deer out on the top of that thing because they wouldn't fit inside the trunk.
0: Uh, You see that every year somewhere on social media, somebody having a deer laid out of the trunk of a car or hung up by the hitch. I think that was the one this year. So, yeah, I mean, whatever you've got, I mean, obviously, vehicles are going pretty extreme, but you know if you've got a car and that's all you really need like you said hunting land close to you start talking to your neighbors um ask tell them you're interested in getting into hunting you know if they're got land around you you know like you said that's a big cost saver there it's just on gas and leasing property um i don't think i don't i've never leased land i've never paid for access to land so you know just knock on doors try to get access as close to you as possible um that's a big money saver that I just went right over my head. If you hadn't mentioned it, I wouldn't even have thought of it.
1: Yeah. And I guess there's probably a lot of areas in the country where it's just kind of commonplace. And it's just part of the norm that you have to get a lease or a hunting club. But I was listening to that hunting or the, the new podcast on our network, Southern Ground Hunting. And he was saying that in the South, hunting clubs where you got to pay your dues, it's just kind of the way of life down there. And it's something we're not really used to up here. Up here, it's like, yeah, if you can get a place that's close to you, if you can get a place that's on public land, you can save a lot of money. That's one of the probably the biggest, the biggest recurring cost probably year after year that I can't avoid for deer hunting is gas. And if I have to drive an hour on average to my hunting spots, whether it's in Minnesota or whether it's in Wisconsin, if I'm driving an hour on average, every time I go out, that mileage really adds up in the pickup truck. It's a lot of gas. Yeah,
0: compared to, you know, somewhere two or three miles down the street. It may not be as good as hunting, but it's going to save you a lot more money. Um, so you're more likely to go out more times, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really interesting point. that Like you said, I wouldn't even have... I was thinking specifically gear-related, then you threw that out there, and I was like, oh, wow. Wouldn't think of that in depth.
1: Yeah, I know there's some guys that'll just buy hunting vehicles, too. Like So not just they might not save on the gas, but they'll save on whatever they paid for the vehicle to begin with. Maybe they have their commuter car is, you know, just a a small four-door sedan or whatever that gets good gas mileage, but then they go on Craigslist and buy a, an old beat-up Chevy for two grand. And that's what they use for their, for their deer hunting and their fishing and whatever else.
0: Yeah. It's got a cardboard floorboard in it. Put your foot in it. Your foot's going to go through the floor all the way down to the, (laughs) we had one just like that. It was a old like nine as our old Ford Ranger little five speed and it had no floor in it so it was a piece of cardboard that we cut off and set in there just to lightly set your feet on because it was the whole floorboard was
1: rusted out of it but (laughs) that's all it was was a hunting vehicle I think we've pretty much beaten this one to death I can't think of any other ways to really save money I'm sure there's all
0: kinds of ways out there that you can save money that you know we probably didn't think of and for you listeners if you have any um Comment on our social media on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram. Let us know how you save money. You know, one way we may have missed.
1: Yeah, definitely. Love to hear it. And as always, those places on social media include either the DIY Sportsman Instagram or Facebook pages, the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel, or the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network social media pages. The network just recently added the Southern Ground Hunting podcast, and overall, we've been really excited about how everything's been received so far. We appreciate all the comments and feedback that you guys send us, so keep it up. Our next episode will likely be recorded on site at Saddlepalooza, an annual get together for the saddle hunting community down in Georgia, where we'll camp, swap stories and ideas, hunt hogs and bass fish. Should be a great time.